Tennessee, 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 Tennessee. Okay, hi everybody. Welcome back to another Holler Live interview. I'm Holler co-founder Justin Canoe, and I'm going to be joined here today by Ian Haney Lopez, who is going to teach us how to take our country back. So without further ado, Ian, how are you, sir? I'm doing really well. Delighted to join you. Thank you for being here. I should say up front that the Tennessee Holler is a progressive news site. We are at tnholler.com and at the tnholler on Twitter and Facebook. Ian, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm a, a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, and I have had a long time interest in racism. The last big advance was really during the civil rights movement during the 1950s and the 1960s. That advance created anxiety among many whites in the South and then across the country. And the anxiety was what would it mean to be in a society in which whites weren't simply assumed to be racially superior, in which there would be integration, in which people would have to get to know each other and go to school together across race lines, early 1960s. Political leaders have a choice to make. They can say to people, we are going to honor the ideals of this country. We are going to move towards racial integration and equality because we all are Americans. Or they could say to themselves and to the and to the voting public, you're right to be afraid. You should be afraid. And in fact, you should vote for me because I'm the only one who can protect you. And that's really how dog whistle politics gets started. It gets started as a strategy. Um, interestingly, one of the one of the first people to do this is George Wallace in Alabama. George Wallace runs for governor of Alabama in 1958 as a racial moderate. He's endorsed by the NAACP. There's so much fear and anxiety. Wallace ends up losing to a racial firebrand. The evening of his concession speech, he says to some of his cronies, and this is harsh language, but he says to his cronies, no other son of a bitch is ever going to out-nigger me again. I'm going to be the worst racial reactionary you've ever seen. And that's how he runs for governor in 1962. That's how he wins. That's how he comes to stand in the schoolhouse door, literally in the University of Alabama, and say, Segregation today, tomorrow, and forever. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. But at the same time, he knew that that language was really unpopular and was getting increasingly ridiculed and unacceptable. So very quickly, he switches to other language. He starts talking about states' rights in particular. Again, this is strategy. Wallace has made the strategic decision to race bait, and then he made the subsequent strategic decision to do so in language that allowed him the ability to deny that that's what he was doing. When in fact, everybody understood that states' rights was Pretty much the same thing as saying segregation today, tomorrow, and forever. You could just pretend that it was about federal state relations rather than racism. So I'm going to play a clip right now that sort of demonstrates what you're talking about. You start out in 1954 by saying never, never, never. By 1968, you can't say anything that hurts or backfires. So you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than white. 
we want to cut this and we want is much more abstract than, than even the busing thing. And how more abstract than never knew. If you were talking to a candidate today, how would you tell them to combat that? It's not, you're a racist. It's right. more complex than that. Right. So that's a great clip from Lee Atwater. And what Lee Atwater is talking about is the way in which the language has evolved from blatantly racist language to things like states' rights, enforced busing, welfare queen, illegal immigrant. But it also evolved to say, hey, we need to cut taxes. We need to cut services. And that's the key here. What you're seeing is that dog whistle politics is not just a way to mobilize racial fear, but it's a way to communicate a substantive message about government. Hey, you can't trust it. Government, when it does things like provide welfare or job training or public education or frankly, healthcare, government's really actually giving that stuff away to undeserving people, undeserving people of color, illegal immigrants, refugees, reject government efforts to create programs that help people because they're not really helping people, they're giving, they're helping undeserving people. When people accept that, they end up turning their backs on government, they end up losing access to those services themselves, and they end up supporting a system of government in which government essentially is run by and for the benefit of the rich. That's a key insight. What we're getting out of dog whistle politics is both racial resentment and hatred of activist government that actually works for working people. That provides a really important way for politicians to message around where we are today in 2019. The goal isn't simply to fight racism. The goal is to fight racial division in the way it's been weaponized against all of us so that it ends up being the plutocrats who are running the country. And that's a message that can bring all of us together. We all need to fight racial division. We all need to build cross-racial solidarity to take care of our own families, whether we're black or brown, but whether we're white too. And this is the key that I think many people have really struggled to recognize. But if you think about the biggest danger to white families today, it's the way in which anti-black and anti-brown racism suffuses our politics. When people vote in terms of fear of black and brown people, they're electing politicians who are actually serving the interests of the very rich and screwing all the rest of us. So when white families are thinking about what's happened to their pensions and why is healthcare so difficult to get and why can't they get a living wage and what happened to the unions? The short answer is too many people have been voting their racial fears and supporting politicians who racially divide us, but who are actually in the pockets of the billionaire class. What do you say to somebody who just thinks maybe people are just racist? I believe what you're saying. I just ran for Congress in 2018. I ran for the seat that Marsha Blackburn left behind. I believe that we have more in common than we realize. I believe that working white men and women and working black and brown men and women have a lot more in common than wealthy people and people of any color that aren't wealthy. The shared lived experience is, is very real. But I also wonder, it's not easy to convince them, you know what, the real, for lack of a better word, enemy here is the oligarchy and the ruling 
in class that really just wants as much as, as they can keep for themselves? How do yeah. we combat the, the, the actual racism? So I think that there's two audiences here. I think there's a white audience. And for the white audience, the message is you think that racism is something that is a problem for people of color. You don't think it's a big deal. If you're well-meaning, you figure you're against racism and you'll deal with racial justice later, but you got other stuff to focus on. And what you don't realize is racism is the biggest threat in your own life. Racial resentment, racial anxiety and anger and acrimony, that is the single biggest, most powerful, most effective weapon that the ruling class have used against us for the last 50 years. And if you don't believe it, take a look at Donald Trump. This is a message that says to white folks, get in the fight against racism. This is not just about doing the right thing. This is about saving your own families. That message then has to be translated to communities of color. And what's happening with communities of color is communities of color have heard messages of cross-racial solidarity over and over and over again. We need to come together. Race divides us, so let's ignore race. Don't focus on race. Focus on the things that bring us together. And that message doesn't work with communities of color because we know that our issues have been consistently shunted aside. That's just another way of saying wait. And it's frankly, that message isn't going to work anymore. So it's very important to recognize that this race-class fusion is not a sort of a colorblind, traditional focus on class because class alone will bring us to, together. This is race class that says we really are divided by race. We really do have to do hard work to deal with racial division. The racism is real. We've internalized it. We've grown up with it. It handicaps our thinking. It poisons us. But we are gonna have to deal with it and we all have to deal with it. White folks have to deal with it to save their families and people of color have to deal with their own sorts of garbage that they've inherited and they've also got to create room for a multiracial movement, an anti-racist, race-conscious class movement. And that's very different from most class movements. A lot of class movements, frankly, most class movements are like, we are the 99%, therefore let's not talk about race. Not gonna happen. You're not gonna build a powerful progressive movement that way. This is an anti-racist class movement. This is a movement of the 99% that says the way we build a genuine progressive 99% is we deal with the things that are dividing us. And the number one thing that's dividing us is racism. We're also gonna have to deal with sexism and patriarchy, religious bigotry. We'll, we're gonna have to deal with those things. And the reason we're gonna deal with them is it's the right thing to do, but also it's the only way we're gonna win on any issue at all, whether it's economic populism or the Green New Deal or ending mass incarceration, police violence. Every issue that progressives care about require that we do the hard work of building a genuinely egalitarian multiracial movement. Do you see the presidential candidates using this kind of language? I don't think a lot of them are doing this. And I think only some of them can do this. It's a radical message, but it's a radical message in the same way that America is a radical experiment. This is a message that says government should be by and for all of us. The economy should be by and for all of us. The point is a society that gives each of us the best possible opportunity to thrive. That's the liberty component a society in which we're recognized as equals, right? That's the equality component. This sort of a message requires candidates who are serious 
about fundamental change in how our economies run and requires candidates who are serious about fundamental change in terms of racial justice, in terms of ending mass incarceration, ending mass deportation, real sovereignty for Native Americans. You need candidates who are willing to say to the American public, we've lost our way. The system's not working. We are going to fundamentally change the system. And that's the best way to honor the American promise. That's the best way to achieve what's exceptional about America. I think there's a set of candidates who are simply not willing to say that. Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, their position seems to be all we need to do is defeat Trump and we'll get back to normal. It's like, no, pre-Trump wasn't normal. Pre-Trump was already deep racial division, surging wealth inequality. We need candidates who are willing to move us forward on both of those dimensions. People like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, I hear them saying, yes, we're going to move forward on these fundamental issues. What I want to hear more from them is a clear explanation that these aren't separate issues and that we should just do both. Rather, I want them to say, we're going to move forward on both because both are already linked. Race and class are already linked because racism is the primary weapon in the class war the rich are winning. And if we want to make progress on any front, we're going to tackle both of them together. I think that's really poignant. I want to let people know that you actually went through a process of studying this. You focus grouped it. You ran a whole experiment where you had people's hands on a knob and they were responding to messaging. And what you found was that this actually worked. This isn't just you yes. in a room guessing. This is actually you went out and focus grouped it and did the work to figure this out. And that's a really important point to make because a lot of people have thoughts, but not a lot of people go out and actually run the experiment. One of the things that I'd like you to elaborate on a little bit that you said was some of the quote unquote solutions that Democrats propose are being proposed on Republican terms. When Pelosi rejects the idea of a wall, but says, but also will give you billions for border security. She's sort of accepting as inherent the idea that there is a threat at the border and that brown people are scary. You're essentially saying something that I think Beto O'Rourke was actually doing a lot of, which is rejecting the notion that there's a crisis, rejecting the notion that this is a threat, and essentially saying we need to embrace the idea of immigration, embrace the idea of a changing populace, focus more on togetherness and, and moving forward together. Right? That's completely right. We started out this conversation by saying, hey, when did this start? This starts with Southern Democrats actually in the 1960s. It's very quickly picked up by the Republicans. It's, it's picked up by Richard Nixon. Democrats know as early as 1970, race is going to be used as a wedge issue to pull apart the New Deal coalition of the white working class, African-Americans and white liberals. So since 1970, they've had 50 plus years to figure out, hey, how are you going to respond? Calling people who are dog whistling racist, saying, hey, Trump's a white supremacist, for example, helps Trump, right? Because Trump's basic message is we are a country locked into racial conflict. Everybody needs to choose a racial team. Progressive saying Trump's a racist and Trump turn around and saying you're a racist for calling me a racist. That's precisely the racial conflict that Trump is talking about. Democrats pretty quickly figured out, hey, we can't call them racist. Maybe we'll stay silent on this. But staying silent didn't work either. If the Republicans are saying people of color are welfare queens, people of color are super predators, they're undeserving, they're threatening. And Democrats are saying, hey, let's ignore all that. Let's focus on 
what we can do for job creation. It just doesn't cut it. If people are animated by these intense racial fears, that's what's got their imagination going. So Democrats had to figure out some way to respond. Bill Clinton figured out a way to respond. But unfortunately, it was a, if you can't beat them, join them sort of response. Bill Clinton himself started talking about how Democrats would crack down on crime and Democrats would end welfare as a way of life. He essentially picked up the Republican dog whistle themes. Today in 2019, most Democrats are thinking that we face the same array of choices in how to respond to Donald Trump. And it's not just Donald Trump, we should be clear. It's just about every Republican candidate out there is campaigning on the basis of a racial threat narrative that says you need to fear Sharia law, you need to fear immigrants, you need to fear illegal aliens, you need to close down refugees, black cities are out of control. That's the main rhetoric coming from just about every Republican candidate. And Democrats are stuck saying to themselves, we can call them racist, ignore it, or we can do a version of imitation in which we say, well, we won't be as extreme as you, but we too will promise to keep you safe from dangerous people of color. We'll make sure that we don't give anything to undeserving people of color. And you see that, for example, when Nancy Pelosi says, well, we won't fund a wall, but we will provide billions in border security. We'll keep you safe too. And the point is to pivot and to recognize you can challenge dog whistle politics directly. You can challenge racial division directly, not as white racism against people of color, but in terms of racism as a class weapon that hurts all of us. Trump wants to campaign and he wants to govern in a way that pretends the real danger we face is from refugees, from caravans, from invasion. Just step back for a minute. These are people who are fleeing for their lives, who are who, who, who are running, who are leaving behind family and their language and everything they know to try and save their children. Are they really the threat or isn't the much greater threat are political leaders who intentionally stoke hatred and division among all of us so that they can rig the rules for the billionaire class and dynastic wealth and the big corporations. We can name the narrative of a threat as the con, fear people of color, they're who threaten you. But the truth is, we're all in this together. And when we come together, that's the only time we'll have the political power to fight the real threat, which is coming from leaders who intentionally divide us so they can rig the rules for the plutocrats. There's sort of a paradox where people in those areas in the rural parts of the state, they say, well, the government never did anything for me. Then if you say, okay, well, how about healthcare, higher wages? Then they say, no, keep government out of this. You know, anything the government touches is bad for them. When, right. you know, there's a right. laundry list of things that the government has done to make their lives better. Their game is to essentially make government seem like the bad guy because they don't want to pay for anything. Exactly. And, and, That's more, exactly and, right. and shrink government yeah. because what is government? Government is a mechanism to actually help people, but they don't need that because they've got all the help right. they need. The they being the one tenth of one percent and the corporations. And and that's and that's really important. So there was a period in the United States, we call it the long new deal. We saw the largest expansion of the middle class that that in the United States history, but but frankly, in the history of the entire world, this was the biggest expansion of the middle middle class ever. It was achieved by government committing to work for working families rather than for corporations. High taxation on big fortunes and on corporations, then government turning around and pushing that wealth downward and outward 
through programs like education and a social safety net and investment in infrastructure and support for unions that created ladders up, up of upward mobility. And the real question is, why did so many Americans turn against government when government was so important to creating this big expansion of the middle class? And the answer to that, to that question, more than anything else, was the power of this racist rhetoric that said, oh, government, you thought it was helping regular people, but in fact, it's helping undeserving minorities, it's helping welfare queens. Hate government. The challenge in 2019 is for progressives to say to folks, you know that hate government rhetoric? That's the rhetoric of the rich. They don't need government help. They would rather hoard all of their wealth for themselves and screw the rest of us. All of us, the 99% need government to make sure that government is working for us and not for the one-tenth of 1%. And the only way we're going to get back to making sure government works for us is by seeing that this idea that government just helps undeserving people is a lie, that dehumanizes people of color and it impoverishes the whole country. You think government's your enemy, don't give up on government as a whole. Hold government to what it should be, engine of upward mobility, an engine towards full humanity for every one of us. And if people say you can't have it because that's going to be giveaways to poor people of color to say, what are you talking about? Everybody, whether they're white, black, or brown, deserves an opportunity to thrive. It's working no matter what. It's not going away. So we might as well make sure it's working in our favor. To have a sort of an exciting, progressive message where people are reaching out across color lines and saying, no, this this has to work for everybody and we're all in this thing together is really important. And I think you're right to take on these issues of racism head on. I just flashed one of your tweets, the most powerful weapon of the rich in the class war they are winning is racism. And then I'm also going to flash your book here. It's called Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. Ian, thank you for what you're doing. I really appreciate you coming on here. And uh, if you have any final thoughts, I don't, we're here in Tennessee and we need a message like this. Exciting young candidates that are taking on long odds to run in extremely conservative districts. We need to get off of this thing of thinking that racism is just one thing, that it's personal hatred, and that racists are just one thing, that they're the kind of people who wear Klan hoods. That's just not right. There's bad news, but also good news here. If you were born and raised in the United States, you've ended up absorbing a lot of racist bullshit. You ended up internalizing a lot of stereotypes. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. The vast majority of us, 80, 85% of us also simultaneously believe in racial equality, believe racism is wrong, believe we should get together across race lines. We are complex. We are complicated people. We can be both poisoned by internalized racism and also deep believers in racial egalitarianism, racial equality. That's very important to hold on to because I think that there's a way in which we want to condemn other people for being racist in a way that we're like, we just reject them, we don't want anything to do with them. And that both alienates them, but also isn't honest about the work that we ourselves have to do. Racism, we all have to deal with it, but we can deal with it because almost every one of us also believes it's a great moral wrong and we should get past it. Dealing with racism 
is the way we make this country what it was supposed to be. We are founded on radical ideas of liberty and equality. And liberty and equality have to mean, at a minimum, that government will not be involved in systematic violence against certain communities because of their race. No more mass incarceration. No more mass deportation. In fact, government should attempt to systematically repair the harms that have been done for decades and centuries on the basis of racist thinking. That's one. And two, government by and for all of us really means that government should give all of us the best opportunity to thrive economically. It needs to run the economy and society in a way that helps all of us. That was the promise. That's what got the American Revolution going. Our progress towards that revolution has been halting. It has sometimes reversed, but overall it has been steady. And 2019, I think, is the year in which we recommit to that radical promise and to say, you know what's been holding us back? The shackles of race hatred. But if we can defeat race hatred, we can come back to the ideals of a country by and for all of us, out of many, one, liberty and equality for all of us, and make that meaningful. So they're not just platitudes, it's not just stuff on a dollar bill, but it's really the way we live and the way we organize our society. And it's the basis for hope for our own children and our families. I definitely hope people go out and get your book, Merge Left, and, and really internalize it. We appreciate your help, help, helping to spread the word and all the work, all the great work you're doing, spreading progressive ideas in Tennessee. Thank you. Let us send this message back to Washington by our representatives who are here with us today, that from this day we are standing up and the heel of tyranny does not fit the neck of an upright man that we intend to take the offensive and carry our fight for freedom across this nation, wielding the balance of power we know we possess in the Southland, that we, not the insipid block voters of some sections, will determine in the next election who shall sit in the White House of these United States. <laughs> Yeah.